Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to have with us Karsten Brunn, who is the uh, president and CEO of Rico North America. Welcome, Karsten. Oh, thank you very much for having me here, Tessa. Looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. So if we can go ahead and kick us, just to kick us off here, can you tell us just a little bit about your current role and a little bit about your background? Absolutely. So once again, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, first, maybe it's important that I mention that I'm originally from Denmark. So you can hear on my accent that um, I'm not here from U.S., uh, but I left Denmark together with my family now more than 25 years ago. Uh, we, we moved to London. Uh, there was a business there that, that uh, the company wanted us to really look at and try and fix and lived there for many years. And my children has really grown up there, Caroline and Sebastian. But interestingly enough, Sebastian is now back in Denmark, but Caroline is in, in London. I also um, had a great opportunity to, to live a couple of years in, in Japan. So um, being there for a while and, and really get to know that culture was, was very important to me also now working for a, for a Japanese company. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, last year I had actually slowly start thinking about retirement and, you know, when am I moving back to Denmark maybe to, to live there? And Rico asked me if, if I would move to North America and, and be the president and CEO of a, of a great company here. So when you ask me about my journey, um, I sometimes describe myself as a global citizen. Uh, when I worked in Europe, I, I was managing most of our business in the front line, you know, sales and marketing and what we call the last mile. And in Europe, you know, it's called the EMEA region. So Europe, Middle East and Africa. And, and it's been such a fascinating journey for me to engage with so many cultures and, and work, you know, in, in, in different areas of the business in Europe and then moving to Japan. So I kind of now also being in U.S., it's just an incredible journey. I've been so lucky. I've really been lucky in my, my opinion. And today I would describe myself as a global citizen, uh, someone that definitely recognize when you when you walk out of that airplane, it's very important your mindset recognize you're a visitor. Uh, it, it's so important that you adapt to what I would call the local culture. And, and especially that was important to me when I lived in Japan. That became apparent to me that that was a very, very different way of working. And, and when I got used to it, I really enjoyed it. It's a very, very respectful culture. And not that other cultures are not, but it's just the way they work and operate. And, and my background is really commercial. So I would see myself as a little bit also different than many other CEOs you, you maybe meet in, in this world. And even with that in mind, you know, I started off in the hospitality industry. I'm actually educated to, to kind of, you know, I'm a Michelin chef, believe it or not, and, and worked in the services industry and, and always 
been in that environment where it's working with people and and try and provide the best possible service. So yeah, my journey has been fantastic. Uh, I always kind of bring my wife into the picture because without her, you know, I couldn't have done all this. So we've had a great journey together. Wow. Kirsten, it's so cool for you to talk about your family. I love that. Um, and Michelin chef, really? That's amazing. Wow. I, only, I only now do the cooking when we have guests because I come home quite late sometimes. And, <laughs> yeah, I, and I also will admit to both of you, we're living close to New York now. And when you live with what I think you call an empty nest, yeah? Yes. Mm, we're dining more out than actually cooking at home. <laughs> completely, completely. So thanks for sharing that with us. So given what's happened over the last couple of years, right? There's so much, if you can even sum it up, but given all that's happened with the great resignation, curious about your thoughts around how you think the future of work is really going to evolve. What do you think? How do you think this is going to go down? Yeah, no, it's, it, of course, it's a question that we, we receive a lot and it's on everybody's mind, but if, Laura, if I can be very honest with you, I don't think really any of us know the real answer. Uh, my biggest focus, to be honest with you, is really the employees' you know, health and, and, and what works for them right now. Because even this morning, I was on a, on a call with our CEO in Canada. And you know how people feel very, they just feel very awkward suddenly being around a lot of other people where the last two years they're kind of just together with their family and sitting at home. And I think, first of all, it's just very, very important that we as leaders make sure we, we really take our, our time to allow the employees just to get back to some kind of a, I don't like the word, the new normal, because I don't think there's a new normal anymore. Uh, sadly, there's so many other things happening in this world that I think we all now have to become much better at having much more an agile mindset. And, and the key for me is to make sure we now provide a very flexible environment. So whatever works for an employee, I don't think we should measure so much the, the input. I think we need to really measure the output of, of what, what does the employee really deliver. And if they can do that and deliver what we're expecting from them, then, you know, if they want to sit in a Starbucks cafe or work from home, I think we need to have that flexibility now. Um, my biggest worry, to be honest with you, and it's a personal viewpoint, is the mental health. Because we still have a lot of employees and, and, and friends, you know, that they live alone and, and, and sit at home for two years. It would be very challenging for me. I'm an extreme extrovert. So every time I'm in the office, I steal the other people's energy and, and get energized. And, and I also think collaboration and innovation, a lot of that still need people to get together. So if we can provide that environment where I call it, we create some collaboration hops where employees can kind of come into the office, but maybe not just to go and sit at a desk but really come in with a very predetermined agenda on, hey, what are we trying to achieve today as a team? What do we want to try and innovate? Or what ideas do we want to talk about? And then they can all work on that and go back home again and maybe sit at home and do a lot of the thinking and the working and then meet up again. But I think we need to have that flexibility now. So to be honest with you, I am looking at, I would call it 
not downscale the number of offices we have in North America, but find a different way of offices. So, so when you walk in, it's not just hot desking or flexible desking. It's kind of nearly making sure that people, when they are in the office, are really now being social, they're engaging. And so I think we now need to see what happens. Maybe in two years' time, some people are arguing with me. I was, I was just at a great event in, 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 in Silicon Valley where a lot of people talk about in two years' time, everybody wants to come back. But, you know, people have different viewpoints. My viewpoint is, no, nah, I think it will be very personal. You know, if you're a young family with, with children and all that, why not give them that flexibility? I don't mind what time of the day you do your job. If you have a great life at home, I think you also perform better at work. So that's the key for me. But that also means the, how do you say this? The profile of the future leader will have to be quite different. I think if, if, if I look at now the stage in my work life, you know, where I am, and I've worked many, many years now, and what I'm trying to do is really surround myself with very, very talented individuals, of course, but also people who represent different demographics, that kind of diversity of thought, because that's the only way I can keep me current and relevant as an executive. Um, I don't think it helped to go back to, I still actually go a little bit back to business school, but I think it's at a stage now where it's better I just make sure I bring in talent and provide a great workplace for them to do their job. But I think that future leadership profile is, is going to be quite different from what we've seen in the past. Carson, thank you so much for that. I, I love the focus on well-being for the employees. And I think after this interview, a lot of people are gonna to wanna to work for you. <laughs> uh, my question revolves around a little bit of research showing that there's this direct correlation between organizational culture and company growth. So I'm curious, how would you define your organizational culture at RICO? And how is that connected to your strategic vision for North America? Oh, Michael, that, that, that's maybe the best question you could ask someone like me. And I tell you, Michael, when I look back what is it some people say if you could learn backwards or whatever, you know, if I knew everything, if I know everything that I know now when I was 25 or whatever, I wish I had all that knowledge because I was so driven on strategic execution. And I didn't not pay enough attention to culture, actually, if I can be very, very honest with you in the earlier part of my career. So I want to focus on my latest job here where, you know, coming to North America, and seeing a company with, with nearly 14,000 employees, you know, we are an 80 year plus old company. And then you go through this pandemic, we're, we're an old manufacturing company that is now transforming into becoming a digital services company. And my emphasis from day one was focusing on culture. I knew I had to also develop a strategy, but I promise you, Michael, and I, I would love to share it with you if we meet one day, that I put a lot of emphasis in what I call culture of excellence. So I, I came here and I wanted to make sure, first of all, that everybody matters. Really wanted to make sure that every employee, every individual, every partner we work with see themselves as leaders, 
see themselves as this part of this journey to make sure we have a great company. So we have put a lot of emphasis to make sure that we, we have a culture where we call it having an aspirational mindset for growth. So never really stay comfortable in the current. Make sure that we step out of our comfort zone and we grow then as individuals. But then also provide an environment where we empower the employees and we use what I call the diversity of thought and inclusion. And it may sound like I'm saying all the right words here, but I can promise you I genuinely believe in it and it's what we are now putting together. I work with a group of people here we just finished what I, we, we call the attributes. What do we expect from someone to join Recon North America? And when you join, you will actually go through an onboarding to make sure you understand this is a company where everybody matters. This is a company where you are allowed to take risk. You know, prefer you don't make the mistakes twice, but, you know, you, you're allowed to really, you know, take risk and fail fast where a lot of companies in the past would have a culture where as long as I'm safe, I make sure I say the right thing. You know, I think that's what's holding innovation back. So putting a culture in place that we now call culture of excellence here was critical for me. And we, we can share much more about that with you. But the way I did it, I think it's also very important. It was not just done on PowerPoint. So for example, for the first 12 months, when I came here, especially because of the pandemic, I did something called the Monday Minute. So every Monday morning, I did a, a recording. Sometimes I did it in the weekends, yeah, but I did a recording. And it was really a way of showing who I am and also give some ideas to the employees about, especially about the mental health during COVID. You know, I would sometimes, I'm pretty much a fitness fanatic, so... I would do video recordings when I would be in the gym and not being in a suit and, you know, also show I had bad days. So really showing that authenticity and be very real as an individual, I think was very, very important. So that was one of the things we took where we really used the Monday Minute as a way of introducing a new culture, a culture where, you know, I'm, we're all leaders, we all matters in this company. And then in parallel, we also did, you know, how would I ever reach out to 14,000 employees? So once a week, and I still do that now, we have what is called Coffee with Carsten. So we randomly select 10 employees. And, you know, I had the call yesterday. There was people in our service delivery and in our IT services. I would never meet them. And I, I tell you, it's like being the, the what do you call it in the US, the undercover boss. <laughs> They tell me so many things that is unbelievable because they have now learned that I will never react negatively for you to criticize or for you to give me ideas. I think the people who work directly with me, they know every week when I had this call because I'm writing emails out. Hey, I just learned this. Could you please do something about it? And even yesterday after that call, that week call I had, I had three emails from the people that was participating on that call. With, hey, you said this in this call, we ran out of time, but here's my ideas. And just writing quickly back to them and saying, hey, thank you very much. So what I've learned is over the years and part of this culture is I don't want to just sit in ton of meetings and listen to the people who report directly to me. 
No, I think the future profile of leaders now is be with your employees, let people be who they are, and let them speak up their mind because you know what? They know the answers. We we have more than six and a half thousand employees working on site at customer sites. So the last thing I also do as part of culture of excellence is reaching out when I'm traveling. I actually spend more time, you know, talking and having lunches with the on-site employees because remember, during the pandemic, they still went to work every day. Took massive risk, you could argue. If I, as a CEO, would not be willing then to also jump on an airplane and go and show them I'm with you. And, and the way I have to say the employees has responded to this, I would call it being more authentic, more engaged, and not see yourself more senior than the rest of everybody in this company, has really helped establish now a culture that everybody can associate with. And then we now launched what we call our strategy, really getting much more focused on our customers instead of being inward focused. But because we have put this culture in place, they now welcome this strategy. Now they understand why we're doing this, and they now understand we all have a role to play to execute this. And, you know, you can always write to me in four years' time and say, hey, you said a lot, but nothing happened after you left. Because I believe you should measure managers and leaders on what happens when they leave, not really what happens when they're there. That's Some people sadly do get promoted on, on just short-term gains. You know, I'm trying to build a sustainable company here, but I, I love your question and I hope I try and answer it not with too many too many ideas, but you know the saying about culture eat strategy for, for, uh, for breakfast. And, and absolutely, I've seen it. We're now in an acquisition mode acquiring companies. The first thing I'm looking at is, do those companies have a culture that will fit into our culture? Otherwise it will fail. So sorry about the long answer, Michael, but I'm very passionate about culture. I think it's so important. That's that's wonderful. Thank you, Kirsten. And um, I couldn't agree with you more regarding the connection between organizational culture and company growth. And you talked about the attributes that you actually are looking for when you're doing the recruitment process of leaders. And uh, for that culture of excellence, what are some of those attributes or characteristics that you look for in a leader that could carry on this vision, perhaps after, after you move on? You know, the first thing is really make sure you don't hire more of yourself, yeah? <laughs> I'm, I'm, very, I'm a big fan of, of you know, bringing in talent and people, first of all, that work closely with me that has a very diverse kind of way of thinking, you know, that's the key for me. But I also think it's very important that the future leaders, when they come into our company, that they're very authentic. You know, in, in my opinion, it is so important now that for any leader in this world, whatever kind of role they're in, you have to be real. You know, you, 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 you really have to stand out and, and really not only talk the talk, but you have to walk the talk. And and be willing to take risk and, and also be willing to show that you're not perfect. I think that there for many, many years, and, and maybe even social media has created some of this, that everybody, you know, has to look perfect in this world. And I think it's very important that we provide an environment. You know what? It's okay. 
it's okay to have a bad day or it's okay if it doesn't work. So when we bring in leaders now, for me, it's very important that they have that vulnerability, that they can show that, you know what, it, you know, care about the employees, not care about their own short-term gains and goals. Um, we could have another conversation one day about, are we really rewarding people the right way to create the right behavior? You know, and we're trying to really look at that also when we bring in these managers, because I, I truly believe most people in this world, they come to work to do the best thing. And, and, and most human beings want to do the right thing for this planet. So if we have the right culture to welcome them into RICO, if we also make sure we reward them and drive them in a direction where we allow them to be who they are and help us drive the transformation of our business, then I do believe a lot of employees will have most of the attributes. It's just allowing them to be who they are. And then, of course, a bit of coaching and mentoring works and, and I would tell you, when I came to, to North America, I think people was a little bit puzzled because my first line of reports, uh, right away, I asked them to get on a training program that takes nearly a year. And, you know, the training is, is not about situational leadership training. It's actually the, the gentleman who does it, he's a mindfulness trainer. And what he works on is really, in very simple terms, is let go of what you're not. Because then you become real. And, and, and really let you be you, because that's what matters. And, and I can now see how that has created now a much more common language, a nice culture between the, the executive management team. And they're all now on, on a joint journey. And they can also call each other out a little bit. You know, they can... Some say, hey, don't go below the line, stay above the line, think positive, don't blame, and but create a very different environment. But it's really a training that is about the individual. And, and the key message he always brings up is let go of what you're not, because then you're real. And employees love that. So, so again, you know, I think most, most people in this world, they, they do have the right attributes. It's really up to us to provide the right environment and culture for them to actually just be them. That's, that's awesome, Karsten. I love what you're saying about being authentically you, right? That, that, that message is just huge. Um, so curious about how that applies to you personally. So when you think about your own kind of um, vision for the company and your own personal philosophy, just curious about how there's a relationship between the two of those. It's interesting, Laura, that changes over life, doesn't it, a little bit? You know, I have my values and my principles, and I think they have stayed with me during my life. You know, I, I, I sometimes, you know, if, if you ask my wife, maybe I'm too honest, but, but I, I just believe in that. I believe in, in if something doesn't work, don't try and, and, and um, hurt people try and coach them, try and work with them and, and give them that feeling that, hey, just because I didn't do yes, you know, didn't do well yesterday, he still allows me or my manager still allows me to, to still try out things and, and take some risk. So for me, I think the journey I've been on, I may be at a stage in my work life where I'm a bit more philosophical. And I think it's very, very important for me that 
I'm not here for my own short-term gain. I'm really here for building a sustainable company, a company that will be here for the next generation and being allowed to do such a fantastic job that I'm in today. I feel like such a big responsibility, to be honest with you, that that that's what I'm more care about. You know, I, I really want to make sure that I never compromise my own values. And my values is really all about everybody has a right to be here. And I'm not just talking about the workplace. You know, it's, I think there's so many challenges in this world right now that, that us who have been very fortunate to be senior leaders, uh, how do we pay back? And, and for me to have this opportunity to, I always say, I, I don't work in a company with 14,000 employees, it's 14,000 families. And if someone loses an income, um, it can be devastating for that family. And, and so for me, I, I would say the culture we put in place, of course, represent a bit of me. But, but, but that is just an, an incredible opportunity for an individual like me to be allowed to do that, isn't it? And, and, and I take it as a big responsibility. So I may not answer your question specifically here, but it's, it's really what I talked about, our culture. That's me. That's what I believe in. I believe in everybody matters. Everybody has a right to be here. And it's okay to make mistakes. Don't, don't feel that's an issue. It's okay to have a bad day. And, you know, I've seen the magic. I've seen the magic of create an environment privately, you know, with my own family. <laughs> you know, I, I had a teenage daughter. She's grown up now. I'm a bit scared of her when she was a teenage girl. But I, I, I have a house that was made of love. And, and when, you, when you live that way and when you create a company where you respect each other, magic happens. So, so if, if I could say how it works with my own values and principles, I would be more grateful that Rico allowed me to be a senior leader and have such a big responsibility for more than 13,000 employees and families, yeah? Carson, that, that's amazing. And we've had so many other CEOs on the show that we found that the most popular ones that are being the most successful, family keeps coming up. They see the organization as a family. And when they create that knit, just amazing things happen. So I appreciate you mentioning that. I wanted to ask about innovation. You know, everyone's always talking about it. We need to stay innovative. So how do you keep your organization motivated to stay innovative? And I'm curious if there are any best practices that are used in different areas, such as sales or professional services. How do we keep that innovative engine going? Yeah, Mike, that's a great question. And you may get a bit more like now, a, a, in my opinion, maybe this feels like very corporate and strategic, but, you know, Rico is a manufacturing card. It's a hardware company. And, and I want to take you back from the time I first of all lived in Japan. It, it was fascinating how senior management, we want to transform this company and become a services company and we want to innovate, but maybe just a couple of layers below we still saw people like, no, 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 hardware is the best thing in the world and that's what we need in the future. So what we have worked a lot on is really make sure that we, we kind of include everyone on this journey so they understand that we, we, why do we need to transform? So 
then let me take you back to now the role I'm in today and then maybe talk a little bit about the strategy we put in place here. I think sadly, still a lot of innovation happens within companies, meaning not at the front line. So the, the, the innovation is sometimes what I call a push model that companies will build something and you better buy it. Where the pull model, where, you know, let's try and listen to someone and be a good, I call it the, the good doctor. Yeah, you know, what is your care about as a customer and what's your issues as a cost, customer? And then reflect on how we maybe could do some co-development. So when we start building our strategy, Michael, it was very fascinating that to create it in a manner where it would be an easy message to bring, we actually have three themes. It's kind of a methodology we put in place now with Calls of Excellence is you have to sense, really need to make sure we sense what's happening in the market. So as Calls of Excellence now inspire people to take risk, to sense what's happening in the front line, then we need to innovate. So we then have a group of people called what we call the Digital Services Center. I'll come back to that in a second. They now need to then get much closer to what the frontline is sensing and then start doing some co-development together with our customers or together with even our frontline employees. And you won't believe it. I've seen magic when I traveled around, things I was not told about, but people who took risk and the innovation worked. Why? Because you built something around a problem. Someone had an issue. You know, some of the greatest innovation, sadly, was because someone had a real major problem, maybe even in health. And they themselves decided, you know what, I'm going to build something that can make my life better. And when you innovate around a true problem, it works. When innovation fails, and that was the last thing in our theme of sense, innovate, and then adapt. What really I have seen over the years was great innovations happen, but the rest of the company is not adapting. So basic things like having an ERP system that cannot invoice, that means the innovation was cool, but it never really got to market because we couldn't deliver, we couldn't invoice. It, it was just very basic things in what you call the support processes in your value chain where the primary process, they got it. Hey, we want to put this out. We want to do it. But the rest of the company forgot maybe to make sure we could invoice, make sure you would reward people to drive that new innovation to market and get rewarded for selling it and make sure you could deliver it and maintain it and then retire it when it doesn't make sense anymore. Don't keep pushing something that is not relevant anymore. So part of our strategy is sense really in the front line with customers. We have now selected 40 specific strategic customers that we are now making sure we all go to and ask them, what are your care about? What are your pain points? How can we co-develop with you? And then we also do that with partners. And then we make sure the rest of the company will adapt. Some of it, we won't be able just to innovate, Michael, by ourselves. So we will partner much more, create an ecosystem and, and welcome that ecosystem into our company. And then sometimes we will acquire. We will also acquire, you know, to accelerate the innovation, especially when you talk about software IP. Sometimes it's, it's more cooler. You find, you know, just being in Silicon Valley and see all these incredible ideas that are happening, but they are lacking the scale and the distribution. 
So when you bring them together with our company, you suddenly accelerate the innovation. But it all has to be based around the customer's care bounds. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of companies are still having that push model and it doesn't work. So when you bring in the culture of allowing people to take risk, to innovate, empower them to do these things, I've already seen it, magic happen. But you won't believe it. We can innovate the coolest stuff. Where I see a lot of innovation fail is because the rest of the company doesn't adapt. So I don't know if that answered you because innovation is a massive question. You know, just innovate within our company and automate processes. In our strategy, we have what we call six pillars. And one of the pillars is just focusing on how can we make ourselves more efficient by automating processes and drive the... So we, so we take the intellect of the human being to actually innovate for our customers instead of struggling with internal processes. So there's innovation happening within the company and there's innovation, of course, happening with, with, with our customers. That, Karsten, I f- it's interesting doing a podcast because I'm like nodding my head as if I were at church, right? The church of the NBA, right? <laughs> um, I, I taught trends and innovation this semester and I could not agree with you more around uh, the co-development with the customer and with the frontline staff. And I think it's so powerful that you have those weekly or monthly coffees with people who are working on the front lines of your company and interacting with the customer and being able to learn and then have that upward feedback loop um, so that they can be proud of the in- part of the innovation process. It's, this it's, was... Tessa, sorry to interrupt, but it's so interesting. Yesterday, nine, nine or 10 people on that coffee meeting with Carsten and two innovation ideas came on an email afterwards. That's amazing. If you, open up, if you open up and that culture allow them to, to, to um, we had another employee and another topic yesterday just write to me. I wouldn't dare normally write to the CEO and president, but I want to give it a try. And I answered the same day I got the email and the response I got was just, I'm like, and that, by the isn't that interesting how long time it sometimes takes people to respond to an email? I have a big focus on if an employee writes to me, I want to answer them within 24 hours. Wow. I mean, it says a lot about your accessibility and the attribute of a vulnerability of leaders to create that psychologically safe, as we say, in organizational uh, development a psychologically safe place for people to share their ideas. Um, This was amazing. We're out of time, but this was an amazing um, conversation. Thank you very much for joining us and for your time. Um, There's both Michael and I are are teaching a uh, elective at HALT this summer called the CEO Insights chorus of what you can learn to about the future of work from CEOs. And I can tell you right now, your this podcast is going to be a requirement for all 70 of our students in that class. It was wonderful. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Karsten. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.